Have you ever had a good dream that turned bad? In 1963, Martin Luther King told the world that he had a dream. Most of us are familiar with that iconic moment. We're less familiar with what he said four years later. In an interview with NBC News, he said, that dream that I had has turned into a nightmare. He went on to speak about the hatred and violence permeating American society. The American people were, in his assessment, insensitive and dull of conscience, he said. While he held out hope for the future, he said, I've come to see that we have many more difficult days ahead. Of course, those difficulties would include the loss of his own life. Now, Genesis 37 centers around two dreams and some difficult days. The dreams turn into a nightmare period, not only for Joseph, the the main character of our story, but really for the whole family of faith. Now, we know the end of the story, what man meant for evil, God meant for good, and because we know that, it's sort of easy for us to read this, this tale and dismiss the difficulty Joseph endured, kind of wave it away, what, God, what men meant for evil, God meant for good, Joseph. But imagine you had to live through these dark days. Which of us wouldn't have prayed to God, Lord, haven't you promised us land and blessing and protection? Didn't you promise to take care of us and watch over us and guard us and multiply us and do all of these things? Well, how is that all going to happen when these circumstances are our reality? And the truth is that all of us, or at least most of us, have had the experience of some life dream turning into a nightmare of difficulty on one level or another. Maybe we haven't been trafficked into slavery like Joseph was, but We know that this life is not always smooth sailing. When we face the troubled waters of life, it's not so easy for us to wave the difficulties away and just say, well, what man means for evil, God means for good. But isn't it interesting that we know the end of the story just like we know the end of Joseph's story? Now, we may not know the particulars, the dates, the times, the locations, but we know how our story ends. It ends in glory. It ends in deliverance. It ends with God restoring all things, repairing everything that's been broken, not just in the world at large, but in your life. It ends in an everlasting dream where you and I are elevated to the status of royalty, surrounded by the family of faith with every hurt and every fear wiped away. We know the end. That is the end. And it is just as true and just as sure as it was for Joseph thousands of years ago. Now, our paths may not be as harsh as Joseph's was, or they may be worse, but as we read his story, we can learn about the life of faith, the faithfulness of God, and the foes we face along the way. So let's begin in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. Genesis is broken up by uh, these family records. Your version may say histories. It's a particular Hebrew word. There's about 10 of them throughout the book of Genesis, and we've seen them each time. Here, in this case, the chapter starts with God's people in Canaan, and it ends with Joseph being forcibly taken from it. Uh, and it reminds us that there is a spiritual conflict being waged in our hearts, uh, but also in the world around us. We have a powerful enemy whose goal it is to derail you, to destroy you, to devour you if he can. But of course, the Lord is stronger in every circumstance. It certainly doesn't help when we uh, uh, get ourselves into some pit of sin or, 
or some sort of trap that the devil lays on our own, right? And we've seen that in the past. We've seen uh, God's people uh, like Abraham not being taken to Egypt, but going himself. And the Lord has to come to him and say, what are you doing? Get back into the land I wanted you. Now, that's not what's happening with Joseph. He's forcibly removed out of the land uh, because we have a spiritual enemy that is struggling against uh, the Lord's work in your life and the Lord's work in this world. But the Lord is always stronger in every circumstance, and we can trust Him. Verse 2 continues, At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now, other than chapter 38, the rest of the book of Genesis is going to tell us Joseph's story. And believe it or not, that's 26% of the entire book. And when you're talking about thousands of years of human history being put together in a book, and then they, they focus on one guy for one out of every you know, four verses, that's kind of a big deal. His experience has a lot to teach us about a lot of different things. Pick your poison. Uh, He can teach us about suffering and faithfulness, about providence and grace, about endurance, about God's power, about how God is always victorious, about trusting the Lord. Uh, There's a lot of great insight from the life and experience of Joseph and from looking at the people around him. Because not only do we see that through his experience, we also learn wonderful things about our Savior, Jesus Christ, through the life of Joseph. He foreshadows the work of Christ in many ways. Particularly, we see through Joseph how Jesus Christ saves the undeserving and wretched people around him. Joseph, uh, his, he, he keeps saving people around him that don't deserve to be saved. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for you and I. And so while many of Joseph's circumstances are tragic, his whole saga is really a a triumph of grace, the power of God's grace, and what it can not only do to overcome our spiritual enemy, the devil, the adversary, but what God's grace can do to transform a terrible situation, what God's grace can do for undeserving sinners who do not deserve to be saved, who do not deserve to be helped, who do not deserve any kind of love. And yet Jesus says, yeah, but I love you still, and I'm going to do a work in your life even though you don't deserve it. At age 17, Joseph was working with Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher in a sort of apprenticeship. But Jacob's plan, we'll find, is to put Joseph in charge of the family business, and he's already installing a lot of authority in Joseph. We find that he's using Joseph to sort of keep tabs on the rest of the sons. Now, some linguists say that the term used here for bad report is always elsewhere used in the Old Testament as a false report. Uh, It's used that way in the book of Proverbs, and for example, that's the way it's used uh, when we talk about uh, the ten spies who give a bad report of the land of Canaan. Uh, And so, the question is, was Joseph being a lying tattletale in this passage? Uh, A lot of commentators think so. They label him spoiled and naive, that he went around boasting proudly, and I suppose that's possible. On the other hand, Jacob's other sons weren't trustworthy, and they were doing weird, shady stuff all the time. Uh, They were often involved in really terrible scandals, and not just in the past. They're going to be involved in some more coming up. And so maybe Joseph's report was his attempt to distance himself from some crazy thing his older brothers were doing. 
Maybe Jacob was going to find out, by the way, these sons over here defrauded this group, or they cheated this guy, or they stole some of this stuff. These are the kinds of things that these guys were involved with. And so maybe Joseph was saying, hey, I wasn't part of that. Here's what was going on. We're not exactly sure. And so we can't really clearly grade Joseph yet, but we have to question Jacob's decision-making. If he wanted Joseph to be an apprentice, if he wanted him to like be brought up and mentored by somebody, man, his other sons are not good mentors, right? These are not the guys that you want to shape your young adolescent favorite son. Uh, and so, we're not, I'm not sure what's up with that. On top of that, Jacob, you're, not, you're no dummy. You've worked around people a long time. You've worked around hot, difficult people a long time. You, you worked with Laban's sons, and, and you know all of the things that go on. What do you expect is going to happen when you take this teenage son and sort of put him in a managerial position and have him act as an informant on the others? Uh, this is a rough-and-tumble group of killers that make up his family. These are not nice boys that, that you know, parents are happy to, that their daughter brings home. These are guys that butchered an entire town and stole all the people. Have any of you ever done any of that? No, because you'd be in jail, or you would have gone down in a blaze of fiery gunfire with the police, right? These guys are, are rough-and-tumble guys, and so I'm not exactly sure what Jacob think, uh, thinks is going to happen here in this arrangement. Verse 3 gets worse. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a long-sleeved robe for him. What a sad verse. Favoritism was a problem in this family for many long decades. It was a generational problem. But here we see Jacob is openly flaunting his preference for one kid in front of the entire world. It's as if Joseph was the, the one only true son, and we'll see he has this kind of preference later for Benjamin, but it's as if Joseph is his only son, and all the rest of the guys are just employees or slaves. As a result, there's an incredible amount of family tension day in and day out, and it's largely because the father's not doing his job. The father is not loving his family properly. The father is not operating the way that a father should. Now, God was working in Jacob's life. We've been following his story for many weeks, uh, and, and the Lord wasn't done with him. But this is a holdover from the, the old Jacob and not the new Israel, right? This is a holdover that Jacob really hasn't allowed the Lord to deal with in his heart. And, and it's so disappointing to see Jacob acting this way um, so openly and so brazenly because he knew firsthand what it felt like to have a father love the brother and not you. He knew exactly what that felt like, and it wouldn't have felt good. But here he is doing it, frankly, to a much larger degree, not just preferring one son to another, but preferring one son to 11 others. And so favoritism, as we've seen already uh, in this book, is incredibly destructive. We as Christians, as believers, we need to avoid it like the plague. We need to, to avoid it in the home and in our uh, place of study or our place of work. We need to avoid it in the church. Favoritism has no place in our hearts, no place in our organizations, no place in our activities. We need to uh, uproot it if we find it in our hearts like the weed that it is before it causes some big destruction. What about this coat? Maybe you noticed my version said it was a long-sleeved robe. What's up with that? 
Do we need to get Andrew Lloyd Webber on the phone and say, hey, you got to rewrite all those songs? No, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? I know some of you know some of those songs. Should we sing them together? Like, no? Okay. Who's seen Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? Okay. Go home and listen to Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's pretty cool. It's all about Joseph's story, and the songs are super cheesy. Andrew Lloyd Webber is the guy that wrote that. Man, we're off track now. Strike this from the recording, but... Scholars tell us that the words used here are obscure. The, the, the idea of this being a multicolored coat first came about in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that it wasn't a coat of many colors. The, the, the scholarly consensus is that it's one of a few options. It could have been a multicolored coat of multiple panels that were sewn together. It could have been a coat that went down to the ankles and had sleeves to the wrists, which would have been unusual. Or it could have been a robe with a bunch of embroidery on it. On it. So uh, we're not exactly sure what the coat was. Uh, we see a similar coat robe being given to David's daughters when he was king, particularly Tamar. She's wearing one in 2 Samuel 13. Interestingly, her coat is also uh, torn off and ruined. Whatever it was, it was meant to be a symbol of favor, of preference, of authority. It was a symbol of Jacob's plan to give Joseph charge over the family and inheritance instead of his brothers. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. Another rendering of this is that they could not so much as greet Joseph. They were not just annoyed. They weren't just a little envious. They had a deep, growing, boiling hatred for Joseph. They hated that their father preferred him. They hated the idea of him ruling over them one day. They hated being around him. They hated hearing his voice. They hated him. Verse 5, then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Many commentators say Joseph was being an arrogant brat here, uh, uh, just just kind of shouting this dream as a, as a taunt in their faces. But what do we know about dreams so far in Genesis? We know that dreams were very significant, especially to this family. Their father, Jacob, would have told each of these sons many times about that dream he had of the ladder and the angels and the vision of the living God that he had in Bethel. Visions like this one were one of the ways that God spoke to this family, and it was important. If that's the case, and since that's the case, would it have been right for Joseph to not share what had been revealed to him? Do we withhold the Word of God because we think it might make people feel weird? We shouldn't, right? We sing the song. Maybe this will be more popular than the Andrew Lloyd Webber reference. We sing the song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine, right? And so if the Lord is sharing something with us, speaking to us, revealing something to us, is it right to withhold that just because it's going to make our, our unspiritual family pout about it? No, not at all. So uh, I'm not sure Joseph is in the wrong here. Verse 6, he said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly my sheaf stood up, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. 
The brothers understood that Joseph's dream was meant to be uh, discerned prophetically, right? It wasn't just he had spicy chili the night before. Uh, There was something prophetic about this dream, or at least Joseph is presenting it in a way that it was prophetic. Now, they rejected the dream, but it was clear that that was the message. In the future, Joseph would be a ruler over his brothers. Now, God speaks prophetically a whole lot, and people can look into the prophecies of the Bible and say, that's not going to happen, and lots of people do. Even people within the church say, that's not going to happen. I've decided all of that is not going to happen. It's an allegory, or we can explain it away this way, that way, or another way, and so none of that's going to happen, right? Uh, But when people do that, when people look at the prophecies of the Bible that have not yet been fulfilled and say, that's not going to happen, do you really think that there's going to be an antichrist and a false prophet and an image of the beast? Do you really think that's going to happen? Listen, when people say that, they're just as wrong as Joseph's brothers were. And Joseph's brothers were profoundly, completely wrong, right? Because God speaks prophetically, and, and people may scoff, but in reality, the truth is, the brothers are scoffing at this and acting like this is so outlandish and so stupid, and, I, and they completely reject it. But it's, not, it's, it's only because they didn't want to believe it. Joseph was already in a position of leadership over them, at least in his father's mind and plan. If you pulled out the family will, last will and testament, you would find that Jacob wanted to leave everything to Joseph. Jacob was giving him the the robe of royalty. He was giving him the authority, the mantle. He's saying, you're going to give me reports about the sons. You're going to be in charge of these things. And so it's kind of funny that they're saying, how dare you think you're going to rule over us? He already was a middle manager over them. And they're like, we don't believe that. And it's so funny that people do this today, even in the church, looking at future prophecy. They look at the whole books of the Revelation. They look at the Olivet Discourse. They look at the last half of the book of Daniel like, that's not going to happen. None of that's going to happen. Do you really think that's going to happen? It is going to happen. And that's why God has revealed it to us so that we can not only know Jesus in His first coming, but expect Jesus in His second coming. And so God speaks prophetically, and we want to pay attention. Now, for the third time, we're told that their hate grew towards Joseph. It's a lot of hate. Haters going to hate, right? But listen, hate is never useful or productive or beneficial in the life of a believer. The problem is, hate is one of those popular and cheapest commodities in our culture today, right? Everybody hates everybody in our culture today. It's being hawked from platforms and pulpits and politicians and publications. It's being, just being just shot out from every place that you need to hate this other group. You need to hate these other people. You need to hate the the people who don't say this, that, or the other thing. And it's a cheap commodity. It's a popular commodity. But listen, Christians, we are commanded by God to walk away from hate in every aspect of our lives. We may not hate our brother. We may not hate our neighbors. We may not hate our enemies. We may not hate our leaders. Our king has said so says, you're not allowed to do that. I command you not to hate those people. We cannot hate people and claim that we walk in the light. That's what the Apostle John said. Now, we are to hate evil. We're to hate evil the way God hates evil. But how does God hate evil? He hates evil while loving people. 
So we are to hate evil, and we can hate evil behavior, but we are to love others. And this is what God has done for us. Do you think that you're not evil in your core? Do you think I'm not evil in my core? We've all gone astray. We are all wicked. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so we are all evil, and thank God that He loves us, the people. He hates our sin, and He went to the cross so that He could cleanse us of our sin and separate us from that sin and separate us from the consequences of that sin. But the Lord loves us from eternity past. He says, I love you with an unreserved love, and I hate your sin, and I want to do something about your sin, and I have to judge your sin, but I love you. And now that I've saved you and transformed your life, I want you to go out and interact with the world the way that I interact with you, loving others, not hating them. Ephesians 4.31 puts it this way, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And so, don't buy in to the hate that infects our culture. Verse 9, and then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he told his father and brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you've had? He said, am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Jacob wanted Joseph to be in charge of his brothers. He had no problem with the first dream, with the, with the, with the brothers bowing down. And he, he wanted Joseph to be in charge of the brothers, even though that was outside the natural, normal order of things in, in their culture and in the world at the time. And we see that he realized God seemed to have some sort of special plan for this younger brother, just like he had between Jacob and Esau. So he recognizes all of that. But then when he hears of the idea that he, Jacob, also bowing down and being humbled, he was unwilling to accept that. He rebuked his son, even though it seems that they as a family understood that when someone had a dream like this twice, it was a clear message from the Lord. How do we know that? Listen to what Joseph will tell Pharaoh directly. He says this in Genesis 41, since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means the matter has been determined by God and he will carry it out soon. So more is going on here than is put on the page. And, and, and Jacob's like, them bowing, that's great. Me bowing? I don't think so. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not willing to be humbled in that way. Verse, uh, or Jacob asked Joseph the same thing his brothers did here. You don't really think that's going to happen, do you? Listen, we believe the Lord. Even when circumstances seem to make His promises impossible, even when the whole world around us is going in the opposite direction, we cling to the Word of God, which will never pass away. Let God be true and every man a liar. Verse 12, His brothers had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. This raises some eyebrows if you've been with us a few weeks. Shechem was the place where they had to hightail it out of after some unpleasantness. But now, a few years later... They felt strong and secure enough to bring their flocks back and make themselves at home again. But danger was brewing, not from the Canaanites, but from within the family itself. And it goes to show us that things may look like they're going well on the outside, but if the spiritual life is not on track, then disaster isn't far away. Our, our enemy, we're told in the book of Genesis, is waiting 
is crouching and ready to pounce and devour if we allow him to. So this family, everything seemed like it was going well. They had wealth and they felt secure and they were moving and shaking. They had their run of the place, but they were about to crumble into sin in a profound way. Verse 13, Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready. I'm sending you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. And then Israel said to him, go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the Hebron Valley and he went to Shechem. Joseph must have been a very capable and responsible 17-year-old. His trip would have been more than 50 miles, a five-day journey from home. He takes it alone. Now, Joseph may have been a little naive, but it would have been obvious at this point uh, that his brothers really, really disliked him. Uh, He didn't suspect they were going to kill him, but you can't have this level of animosity without it showing. And, you know, I mean, you guys know how Thanksgiving dinners can be, right? Everybody talks about it. Now, imagine that your family actually might want to kill you, right? (laughs) You, you, You know that they're not too excited to see you. So what are we seeing? We see that Joseph was ready and willing to step into a very tough job, and, and he's faithful even when the going gets tough. In this way, Joseph's a great example to us. Are we ready to be sent on assignment by the Father? Those assignments won't always be pleasure cruises. Sometimes they're going to be into a hostile environment among people who have no interest in showing us any kindness at all. Hopefully, when the Father calls us, we're able to immediately answer, I'm ready. I love that that's what his answer was to his father. Joseph didn't know it, but at this moment, he became a living sacrifice. Through his life, through his suffering, through his difficulty, because of his faithfulness, multiplied thousands of people from many nations were going to be saved from death. The cost of this heroic feat would be high. It would require that Joseph's life be forfeit to the plan of God. Verse 15, a man found him there wandering in the field and asked him, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they are pasturing their flocks? They moved on from here. The man said, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. This is a beautiful moment of providence. All of these stories remind us that when God calls us to serve Him, He doesn't expect us to do it on our own. He does the heavy lifting. He provides. He prepares. He pilots for us. It was God who brought the animals to the ark. It was God who closed the door when the rain started. It was God who provided the ram in place of the sun. It was God who brought Abraham's servant to the very spot where Rebekah would be. Whether this man was a heavenly being or a random individual, it was the Lord who placed him in the right place at the right time twice, not just to find Joseph, but earlier to hear the brothers and hear their plan. And it's a comforting reminder to us that you may feel lost at some point in life, but God will never lose you. He can find you if, even if you're wandering in some faraway field. There's also a lovely typology of Jesus here. Joseph says, I'm looking for my brothers, the brothers who hated him, the brothers who were planning to hurt him, the brothers who wouldn't speak one peaceful word to him, the brothers who didn't consider Joseph much of a brother at all. In fact, they'll lay to say to Jacob, does this coat belong to your son? They don't say, does this belong to our brother, right? They don't own Joseph as brother, and yet he owns them as brothers, and reminds us of how Jesus came searching for us. 
He came running after us, and He does not shy away from calling you His own. He identifies with us even when we were at war with Him. And not only did He go searching, but like Joseph, we see He goes the extra mile to reach us when we are lost. What a great image. Verse 18, they saw Him in the distance, and before He had reached them, they plotted to kill Him. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes that dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him, throw him into one of the pits, and we can say a vicious animal ate him, and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. There's a hateful sarcasm here. The name they used means Lord of the Dreams. These men cultivated envy and hatred in their hearts, and now the fruit is coming off the trees. It's not a good fruit. It's rotten. Blood oranges is what's coming off of the trees of their hearts. Earlier, they had slaughtered a town. Why? Because someone dared to defile their sister. You can't do that to our family. And now what do we see? They're planning to slaughter their own flesh and blood because they're annoyed with him. They don't like him very much. And not just kill him, but then just throw his corpse into a cistern. One scholar notes that the denial of a proper burial was a particularly horrifying atrocity in this era. It was something you did not do, even if you were murdering somebody. (laughs) The brothers think they'll destroy Joseph's dreams but they simply prove for us once again that men can mock God, they can ignore God, they can fight against His work and reject His Word, but they cannot overthrow the Lord. Our God is sovereign, and His will will be done. He cannot fail. Verse 21, when Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness. Don't lay a hand on him intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father. Poor Reuben. Uh, he's just the Fredo of the family. He's just got bad plans all the time. He tries to make these big moves. They never work out, right? Or last time we saw, he was trying to, like, make a move to take over the family and just wah, wah, and didn't work at all. This completely doesn't work. Uh, same thing's going to happen here. Later, he's going to try to convince Jacob to let them go back to Egypt. It just doesn't work. As the oldest, Reuben would bear the ultimate responsibility for this situation. Perhaps he was hoping to deliver Joseph back safely and maybe get back into his father's good graces after his failed takeover bid with Bilhah. He does take charge here, at least in the moment. He's not suggesting to his brothers. He's telling them, we are not going to kill him. But then he disappears somewhere, giving the brothers the opening they needed to treat Joseph cruelly and make their own plans. Reuben sort of reminds me of the Apostle Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's got plans. He's got ideas. He's making moves. He's very self-assured. But without the work of the Spirit, all the plans come out askew, and they just fall to pieces, and they don't work out. And so as, as believers, as people who are trying to make decisions in life, we need the Holy Spirit to be directing us and empowering us and shaping our lives so that the Lord's plans can be accomplished through us. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers... They stripped off Joseph's robe, the long-sleeved robe that he had on. They took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, without water. Eugene Roop writes, Cisterns existed to catch rain so that there would be water for flocks during the dry season. Pasturing flocks where the cisterns are dry seems unusual, but the sterility of the cistern reflects the family situation. There is no life in either place. You know, wells are important, especially in this family. And we've seen a lot of digging of wells, filling of wells, finding of wells, all of these different things. And so it's a big, uh, big deal that we're seeing here a picture of what a well that's completely dry, completely empty. On top of that, 
But we see here how sin just ruins us and poisons us and, and backfires on us. Let's think it through. They throw Joseph into this empty well, and at least for everybody but Reuben, the plan is, all right, well, we didn't kill him, but we're going to throw him in here. He's going to starve, and he's going to die. He'll be dead. Great. And then as they graze up and through the land, eventually they will come back to this spot, to, and, and theoretically, by then, some water hopefully will have collected in the cistern, and then they'll water their flocks. But the problem is the water will now be toxic for their animals because it's poisoned by the body of their brother that they've thrown into this well. And so they're just blinded by their hate, and they're ignoring the consequences of their sin. They're not thinking about anything other than just giving vent to this hatred. Clothing's a big theme in Joseph's story. His father had clothed him in the special robe. God wanted to clothe him with something much better. That first robe was torn off the way Jesus' purple robe was removed before his sacrifice. Then they are wrapped in humble clothes, one as a slave, the other for his burial, until finally they're brought out and clothed in majesty. Verse 25, they sat down to eat a meal, and when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. It's a chilling scene. In chapter 42, we'll be told that as they sat eating, probably the fine food sent from Jacob by Joseph's hand that Joseph was crying out in anguish, begging and pleading them for help. And there they are just eating their meal. This is sociopath stuff. Uh, this, is, this is scary behavior, topped only by their willingness to sell their own brother into slavery. Interesting side note, Ishmaelites re- referenced here. Uncle Ishmael was actually still alive at this point. He hadn't died yet, if you do all the math. And so this caravan was full of a bunch of Hebrew cousins, right? And these were technically related to these people. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, not lay a hand on him. For he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, the brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here we have the weasel of the tribe of Judah doing gross stuff. He reveals himself here and in the next passage as to be utterly depraved, uh, and he convinces his brothers to sell Joseph for an amount of silver that was equal to a stick of butter, eight ounces. Let's just trade him, get ourselves some silver. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes, went back to his brothers and said, the boy's gone, what am I going to do? You know, Reuben on one level didn't want to do anything wrong, but he still went along He still participated. Maybe while he was helping tear Joseph's robe off, he did it half-heartedly. But guess what? You're wholly guilty of this evil, wicked thing that has happened. Now the ten brothers work out a conspiracy to trick their father. Verse 31, so they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, dipped the robe in its blood. They sent the long-sleeved robe to their father and said, oh, we found this. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? His father recognized it. It is my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Once again, Genesis drives home the spiritual truth that we reap what we sow. Jacob had deceived his father by killing a goat, and now the same thing is happening to him. Interestingly, he immediately was convinced by their lie. He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't investigate. He simply takes their word for it, even though he knows that they're not trustworthy and that they were absolutely capable of the most vicious kind of violence. You know, before Jacob was walking with the Lord, he was a very crafty man, cunning man. 
Now he is walking with the Lord, albeit imperfectly. But as the Lord works in his heart, what do we see? He's not a crafty schemer anymore, and that's a good thing. He's a meeker man, a more humble man, a man more willing to trust. And and that is a very good thing overall. But in this situation, uh, he's deceived. Uh, He's reaping what he's sowing, but he's also just, just deceived by these wicked brothers. We're told the brothers sent the robe. They didn't bring it themselves. Kenneth Matthews writes, the text shows them to be cowards as well as liars. Verse 34, And Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth around his waist, and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. So Jacob announces that he will never stop mourning. This was a terrible tragedy, yes, But refusing comfort in life, even in life's tragedies, is not a good thing. Because of what Christ has done for us, because of the power of the resurrection, no sorrow is so great that it should swallow up all of our hope. Now, the Lord doesn't expect us not to mourn the tragedies of life. We can and we should. Jesus even wept even when He knew He was about to raise His friend from the dead, and yet He sorrowed and He wept. It was a tragedy. So it's not that we just act like things aren't hard or things aren't painful or anything like that. But just as love, not hate, is to define our lives, so too hope, not despair, should define our lives. 2 Corinthians says that God comforts us in all our affliction and then sends us out to comfort others in any kind of affliction. And so life is tragic. We all have to face tragedy at some point in life. When that happens, be comforted by the hope that God has given, and allow others to bring godly comfort to you. Verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. So it seemed hopeless for our man Joseph. We know the opposite was true. The opposite of hopeless was true. We know exactly what's going to happen. It's one of the great stories of the Bible that we get excited about and one of the stories we want to tell our children about. It's the opposite of hopeless. It's a triumph of God's power and grace and His majesty and all these different things. There's a marvelous feat of grace that was just beginning. God is always in charge. He cannot be stopped. We can trust Him, not just for Joseph's story, but for ours as well. Do you feel like you're stuck in a bad dream of some sort? Go to the end of the story. Take to heart the hope and the promise that the Lord gives. Don't make the mistake of giving in to hate or hopelessness or resignation. The Lord of the dreams is the Lord of our lives. Be ready and go after Him as a living sacrifice, knowing He will work His astounding grace through you until you are brought to your glorious completion.